As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Welcome to another classic replay from the archives of Unbelievable. We hope you enjoy the conversation and do let us know what you think. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk and leave comments on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or tweet us at unbelievablefe. For many more resources to help both believers and skeptics to explore faith, please visit our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there will unlock access to all content on the website, as well as giving you special access through the weekly newsletter to exclusive content such as bonus videos and ebooks. That's premierunbelievable.com. And now, here's today's unbelievable classic replay hosted by Justin Briley from 2016. Well, today on Unbelievable, we're asking, is human life intrinsically valuable? And the idea that human life is intrinsically valuable is dying, side by side with our Christian culture, says Richard Weikart in his new book, The Death of Humanity and the Case for Life. He claims that ideas that were once used to justify genocide, forced famine and compulsory sterilization are now back in vogue. He covers things like abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, the treatment of those with disabilities and the elderly in his wide-ranging book. Uh, Richard is Professor of Modern European History at California State University, joins me as our Christian guest on today's show. Uh, two atheist guests joining me on the show today. Firstly, Peter Singer, he's a bioethicist at Princeton University, uh, well known as an Australian moral philosopher and for his writings in the area of animal and human rights. In fact, he's been voted one of Australia's 10 most influential public intellectuals in the past. Um, now, he has argued that a human's right to life depends upon their capacity to hold preferences. Um, and that's very much tied to their capacity to feel pain and pleasure. Consequently, uh, certainly he's an advocate for abortion, even possibly questions over whether newborns lack the essential characteristics of personhood. I'm sure we'll get into that kind of thing today. Um, personism is one of the things he's known for uh, as far as his view of of how we should treat humans. Um, and in the second half of the show today, we're going to be joined by another atheist uh, philosopher, a psychologist, uh, Susan Blackmore, uh, for her take on the conversation we'll have had at that point between Richard and Peter, my guests on today's programme. So Richard and Peter, welcome along to the programme. You're both joining me by the wonders of Skype, so we'll uh, we'll see how well our signal holds out. But um, uh, first of all, Richard, welcome along to the programme. Been been a, a while since we've had you on, unbelievable. Um, what's this latest book all about then, and, and where has it come from? Yeah, this book, The Death of Humanity and the Case for Life, is looking at the way that a variety of secular ideologies, and I cover a a very wide variety of secular ideologies since the Enlightenment period, have contributed to eroding 
the Judeo-Christian sanctity of life ethic, thus bringing us into a culture where we have easy acceptance of abortion, uh, even infanticide, and euthanasia increasingly as things are going on. So it's looking at the way that a whole host of ideologies uh, that have denied the uh, denied the creator, denied that humans are equal because of their being created uh, equally, and looks at then how they have uh, brought us to this uh, point of what some people refer to as the culture of death. Your previous books have obviously been in the realm of the ideology of Nazism and Hitler and so on. Do do you think we're somehow approaching again a similar kind of mindset that led to the kind of issues that, that, that came out of that particular era? Well, I do actually include uh, discussions of biological determinism in which I talk about Nazism in my book. I, I mean, do, I do give a pretty broad historical survey. I also cover communism and uh, environmental determinism and, and, again, a lot of other secular ideologies as well. But what I find particularly uh, troubling about those ideologies is that they do deny human equality, and because they deny human equality, they... Uh, set up certain categories of people which they then define as not being, uh, not having human rights and thus uh, can be disposable. In the case of uh, Nazism, that would be certain racial groups. In the case of communism, that would be certain economic groups. In the case of today's bioethicists, uh, things get defined very uh, differently. And of course, Peter Singer is one of the people, in fact, that I discuss in my book, of course. Uh, and uh, things get defined based on mental abilities or rational abilities or preferences. Where, where do you particularly um, disagree with Peter then most fundamentally? Well, in my book, one thing that I try to do is look at, I do look at the most fundamental issues that are relating to this question of, you know, what is it that would give human life value and how many secular ideologies have uh, tried to undermine the uh, meaning and value of human life. And one thing I would say start off with is that there there are certainly a number of areas that I would agree with Peter Singer on, and I think maybe it'd be good to point out some of these things from the start. Uh, that is, I agree with him uh, when he uh, says that we should be looking out at the interests of others, not just our own self-interest. I think that's fundamental. I think it's actually, I think it's a Christian idea. Uh, Paul said, look not out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's out of Philippians chapter 2. So that's a fundamental Christian idea, and, and I can certainly agree with Peter Singer on that particular perspective. I also agree with him when he talks about the fact that we find fulfillment in pursuing the ethical life and searching for these, these uh, what he calls particular meaning that he thinks that even atheists can have in a human life. But where I fundamentally disagree is I think those particular insights I think only really makes sense in a theistic framework. That is, when he talks, he makes a leap from we don't have any meaning in the universe, there's no meaning in the cosmos, he would say no purpose, no goals, uh, and such, but he thinks for the atheist we can have uh, per what he calls particular meaning, meaning for individual uh, lives. And I don't see how that leap can get made uh, without uh, that meaning in the second case being simply illusory. 
Mm. Okay, well, we we have the man himself to to defend himself. Uh, so uh, it's great to have you joining us for the first time on Unbelievable today, Peter. Um, Peter, you've you've been doing this stuff for decades um, and well known for some of your writings. I'm sure that some of your positions uh, do do get, if you like, um, exaggerated or, or you know secondhand kind of views of them. Um, so it'll be good for you to be able to speak for yourself on this occasion as to, to where you do draw the line on some of these ethical issues. Um, do you want to sort of just give us an idea of, of where you what you do see your, your overall take on this question of whether human life is intrinsically valuable? Um, because I, I know that you don't necessarily view it as a case of humans per se, but but what makes a person? Do you want to uh, talk to us about that? Well, well, exactly. Um, but let me just say it's not it's not only about what makes a person. Um, when uh, uh, Professor Weikart was talking about those who take uh, hierarchical views of value and regard some races as superior to others, um, I think we also need to look at the way in which we regard our species as superior to others. Um, I accept, of course, that it is superior in terms of intelligence, uh, as far as we know, to any other species existing, though there may be others somewhere in the universe, who knows. But um, even in terms of, of having interests, in terms of the capacity to feel pain or to suffer, we're clearly not the only species that can do that. And uh, it's religions like Christianity, I think, that have actually emphasised that difference and therefore led to a great deal of unnecessary cruelty through the ages being inflicted on non-human animals because they raise the human species uh, above others and... Uh, There's a long history in Christian theology of people saying that animals don't count or God gave us dominion over the animals, so it doesn't matter what we do to them. Um, So I want to start by broadening the picture, not narrowing it, uh, so that we recognize that pain is a bad thing, uh, that enjoying life, being happy is a good thing, and that uh, pleasure and pain are not limited to our own species. So uh, one sense in which I think human life is... Uh, not specifically sacred is that um, I don't think that merely the fact that you're a member of the species Homo sapiens gives you uh, in itself a greater significance or even a greater claim to life than a being who is a member of some other species. Mm. So that's that's not to say that I don't think that there are differences between typical humans and non-human animals. Obviously, we are the only species that can have this kind of abstract conversation. And uh, there are other differences as well that may give us a reason for thinking that sometimes uh, the killing of a being like us is more serious than the killing of a being who lacks those characteristics. Mm. But I don't want to say that it's just a matter of what's what species you are that makes the crucial difference here right um when it comes to humans i mean i know that for instance you're not particularly maybe keen on on the phrase humanism uh, as, a, as a sort of philosophy of, of where you stand you've, you've talked about personism what what if you like contribute no, actually i don't usually talk about personism that's not a term that i've used okay. uh, as far as i'm i'm aware but um you're right that i think humanism as a term for a secular viewpoint um, is wrong because I think that we need an ethic that goes beyond just human beings. Sure. What what would for you kind of be the kind of things that do um, accrue a human in particular 
more value, say, than, um, you know, a, a highly developed primate, for instance? Well, it would be the things that um, are distinctive of human beings uh, that we can recognize as being morally significant. So, for instance, uh, we can think about our lives over time. We can make plans for the future, not just for the short-term future, not just for how can I get that food over there or uh, uh, how can I mate with that uh, attractive a member of the uh, the opposite sex over there, but um, what will I do next summer? Um, what will I do after I graduate? Uh, what will I? What kind of a partner am I looking for throughout my life? Um, we can we can think about those things, and I think you could argue that part of the tragedy of somebody being killed uh, at an early age when they could have lived for for decades further is that their plans are being thwarted or frustrated uh, and the work that they've done towards carrying out those plans in the past maybe studying so that they could graduate and then perform a certain kind of work um that that is then in vain yeah um, and i don't think that we can say that about any other uh any non-human animals um at least on this planet although i do think we sometimes underestimate the mental capacities of, of non-human animals sure. um, I wouldn't go so far as to say that they can make plans for what they'll do next summer or uh, in five years now yeah. or anything of that sort do, so I think that makes a difference the seriousness of, of killing and to the extent that say a human maybe at a very early developmental stage or even a, a newborn baby would not have those kind of mental capacities the ability to think about obviously what they're going to be doing in the future and so on you, you you do therefore distinguish in terms of the value the, the, the seriousness let's say of taking the life of one or the other yes i think there is a difference let me i, I don't want to put it more strongly than that but i do think that there's a difference when you develop capacities to think about your life uh, as a whole um of course you know even with newborn infants the the the, the love and care of the parents and of other family members and uh, other you know, people around is is tremendously important uh, as part of what makes it a, a tragedy when a, a a newborn infant dies. Uh, so it's not that there aren't other factors that are very important, but I do think there's something additional that comes yeah. that develops once you get the kind of capacities that I've been talking about. Sure. And um, so, what uh, you... yeah, do you want to go ahead, Richard, and 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 start to uh, to, to lead off this conversation? Yeah, it seems like one of the things uh, that Professor Singer is uh, claiming is that there's these certain capacities, I mean, he is claiming this in his writings and, and also here, that is this certain capacities, and he identifies one particular kind of capacity, the planning and self-awareness, rationality, it gets, sometimes those words get used in his writings about it. But in claiming that his opponents, such as myself, are being arbitrary by using the human species as the dividing line, it seems to me there's also a certain arbitrariness about the selection of that particular characteristic and in even knowing which beings would have that particular characteristic. So I think there's two sort of fundamental problems with that kind of perspective. Uh, the first one is that uh, people like uh, Joseph Fletcher suggested there were, at times he, he made a list of like 15 different characteristics uh, that he thought were sort of human characteristics that could confer personhood on people. And perhaps people could even add other ones. There could be our, our capacities for creativity, our capacities for love and having relationships, 
and such. These could be other kinds of capacity, or even our moral capacities for that matter. Uh, there could be other kinds of capacities that we might think of as being human that uh, are, are not just what you have said. And then also, how do you determine when a being has that particular capacity? Right. Well, they're, they're, they're certainly good points. Um, and I think on the first point, whether the things that I've singled out or the broader range that Joseph Fletcher uh, mentioned, as you say, or, or somebody else's view, um, I think that's a discussion we should be having. I, I think you know, this discussion is, needs to be an open one. We need to, to think about these things. Um, and perhaps we'll eventually reach some kind of consensus on what's important. Um, perhaps perhaps we'll, we'll have a range of differing views. Uh, obviously, that, that can happen on, on ethical questions. We, we don't always end up agreeing. Um, on the question of how do we determine, uh, look, I think it's, it's often difficult to determine, but and for the purposes of making decisions, of the purposes of law, certainly, I think we should draw the line very conservatively. Uh, I mean, it's also very hard to determine when somebody has the capacity to be able to vote, for instance, or the capacity to be able to drive a car or to handle alcohol. But uh, obviously, we do have laws that say that there are certain ages at which you can do those things. Um, so we don't try and decide in each case. Uh, I mean, we could, I guess, try and give somebody tests before we allow them to vote, but it would be very cumbersome. We, we just set a line and we say, well, we think this is a, a reasonable place to draw the line. So I'm suggesting for, the, for these life and death decisions, we should clearly draw this line very conservatively and make sure that we're, we're, we're not uh, allowing people to be killed when they do have, or when they possibly may have uh, some of the capacities that we might think to be relevant. Do you want to come back on that, Richard? So, so why would you draw? Why would you draw the line then at uh, a month uh, for an infant being alive uh, without, you know, at one point you're, you're saying you're wanting it to be conservative? Sorry, I, I, fact, I don't say. I don't. Just, can I just get this clear? I don't. Sure. Of course, I don't hold the absurd view that an infant is not alive before a month. In fact, I'm quite happy to say that a human life begins at conception. I'm quite happy to I agree with pro-life well, people. I didn't say anything about say human that. life beginning there. I, I was mentioning the point at which you thought their life should be protected. Oh, uh, I which see, they right. Had, yeah. Right, which um, you have actually, said. Actually, you, you know, right, but the, the view that I draw the line at a month is a view that I put forward in a book published in 1984, and uh, within a, I can't remember exactly when, but certainly within the next 10 years, uh, I said that I thought it was really um, not possible to just have a, an absolute cutoff line uh, but that the decisions ought to be weighed up by, uh, for example, hospital ethics committees on the individual circumstances of the case. So um, I, 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 w in thinking about a month, I was thinking of a, that as a conservative line. That is, I think it's pretty clear that no infant less than a month old, sorry, yeah, no infant uh, less than a month old could have the capacities to see themselves as a self-aware being uh, existing over time. Um, and if, we, if, if you disagreed with that, then I think you would have to say, well, a lot of non-human animals would have those capacities as well, because a lot of non-human animals are going to be more self-aware, give more signs of that than a human infant of, uh, of a month or something like a month old. I mean, Richard, what, what are you wanting to draw out from, from Peter in this? Um, is it your view that, uh, I mean, a lot of people will have a natural instinctive reaction that the idea of 
seeing um, a, a baby uh, under a month old or whatever uh, as as less valuable or indeed um, legitimate at one level to to to, um, to kill because perhaps because of particular circumstances that seem to warrant that. Um, uh, nevertheless, there's a, a sort of instinctive um, recoiling for, for many people um, at that. Is, is that what you're appealing to, Richard? Or, or, or why do you think that actually it, it goes beyond this issue of their cognitive abilities and so on? You know, I think you, it's interesting you raise that issue, sort of instinctive reactions to it, because I, I, I when I spoke at, at the beginning of the, our conversation about the, you know, the issue of the meaning of life and, and such, and it it uh, occurs to me that uh, this whole notion of there even being a reason for people to be concerned about the interests of others or to practice morality in the first place uh, is, from what I understand uh, in Peter Singer's views, uh, simply being put upon us by an evolutionary process, a chance process that took place without any purpose, without any No, goal. that's not correct. Okay, Sorry, well, could you please, uh, I'd be glad to be enlightened then. Please let me fill me in on it. Yeah, I, I don't draw any values from evolution. I'm certainly not. Um, I think that commits a well-known fallacy that philosophers talk about, uh, the, the attempt to move from is to ought. Uh, and I've been pretty careful, I think, to avoid that in my writings over my entire career. Um, I think that uh, the values that we have, we get from... Uh, reflection on the world and on our place in the world I think we can see when we do that that uh, we are one being among others living in the world we care about our own interests obviously we care about our own uh, well-being and our own happiness and uh, don't want to suffer greatly but when we look at other beings who can also suffer we can see that that's a bad thing for them in something like the same way that our suffering is a bad thing for us and i think we can see that we shouldn't just take our own self-interested perspective on this that that would be something that is actually contrary to our ability to understand that we are just one being among others to, to just say yeah well i'm one among others but i just don't okay. care about the others what, what, that seems to me where, to be where, wrong where do you what, what were you kind of leading up to then richard in terms of your your view on um peter's a take on evolution or, or where, where, where it does or doesn't lead us in terms of human value. My point was that he, he, is, he does claim very forthrightly in uh, his practical ethics that there is no purpose, overall purpose, in the universe. And so even though he may not claim that morality is just something put upon us by evolution, that there are other kinds of rational considerations or something that may be there, he does argue that because of the chance processes that have taken place over time, that there is no overall purpose to life and no overall per meaning to the cosmos in general. Uh, so he does go on to say, and here I'm actually quoting, now, now that it has resulted in the existence of beings who prefer some state of affairs to others, however, it may be possible for particular lives to be meaningful, and then you go on to say, in this sense, atheists can find meaning in life. But what I don't see is how you can get from a meaningless universe with no purpose to a situation where then there are moral, uh, there is morality that then should cause people to then have value for other people 
to be aware, not just be aware of, but to respect their preferences. Uh, because let's face it, there's lots of people out there who uh, delight in doing bad things. I mean, that's part of the reason why you have to write moral philosophy, is because there's people out there who don't want to do the right thing. Uh, Genghis Khan, for example, delighted in plundering and, and killing and raping and pillaging. Uh, and there, he's not alone out there. There's a lot of people that are do it on a much smaller level, on a day-to-day -day basis. They cut down other people. They delight in causing pain to other people. So what is it that would then... Uh, what, what provides the ought in that sense? Cause us or motivate us to yeah, right. live, this, live this moral life or think okay, that that's okay. something um, have to good. do. Good. So, go ahead, um, Peter. Yeah. Firstly, you're quite correct to say that I don't think there is any purpose in the universe as a whole. I don't think it was created for a purpose. And I think when you look at evolution and the way in which it's worked, it's pretty clear that there is no purpose in that and certainly not a purpose of a benevolent creator because it just seems to be such an incredibly, uh, uh, I guess, such an indirect and often uh, a way of, of developing that, that so often includes so much pain and suffering. Secondly, um, you're quite right, again, un, you know, true un, but unfortunate that there are many people in the world who don't care about others and even some, a smaller number, who actually delight in inflicting suffering on others. And let me just say some of those people, of course, are religious believers who do believe in a God and in a purpose in the universe, um, and some of them are atheists who don't believe in a God and a purpose in the universe. But to answer your specific question, why do I say that we can give meaning to our lives, well, that's because we are purposive beings. Um, we are beings who have purposes of our own, and we can find some things fulfilling and meaningful to us. So it's not meaningful sort of full stop. I, I, I don't think that any life is sort of meaningful in the sense of being meaningful somehow to the universe or to the creator of the universe, since I don't believe there is such a creator. Um, but I do think we can find our own lives meaningful. And so, for instance, we may decide that we are going to try to um, reduce the amount of suffering in the world in some way or other. We may commit ourselves to trying to Im improve the position of some of the poorest people in the world, or we may try to reduce the suffering we inflict on animals. Uh, and we may find those meaningful and fulfilling things. And, and we may say things like that if we compare it to somebody who, let's say, is spending their life sitting on the sofa watching sitcoms on TV, we may say, look, that's really a pretty mean thing to do, you know. How are you, how are you making a, a positive difference to the world? You're not. You're just going to exist and then you'll go and there's no difference. Whereas if you try to make the world a better place, you will find that more fulfilling. You'll actually enjoy living that life better and you will, you know, on your deathbed, should you have the chance to reflect on your deathbed, think, I've lived my life in a worthwhile way because there's less suffering in the world because of the things that I've done, and I think that that's important. Richard? But, but once again, you're using these moral, you're using these moral to making it a better world, but if there is no purpose and meaning in the world in general, how can we make things a better world? There's no morality inscribed in the universe. In fact, I think you even said that, um, one, that, there, there's, that morality is not in the fabric of the universe. I think that's sort of a quote from you, or at least a, close to a quote from you. Uh, so if there's no morality in the fabric of the universe, then how are we making the world better? I understand what you're saying, that we're, we're helping individuals uh, and we're making their lives better. But what difference does that make if there's no meaning in the universe? 
You're listening to Unbelievable with me, Justin Briley. My guests are at present on the programme, Richard Vicart and ethicist Peter Singer. And we're going to be continuing this discussion on uh, whether there is an innate intrinsic value to human life. And we'll allow Peter to respond in just a moment's time to that question of Richard. Uh, Unbelievable, available, of course, for download as well if you want to go online. PremierChristianRadio.com slash Unbelievable. Do join us again in a moment's time. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to Unbelievable with me, Justin Briley. This is the second part of today's programme here as part of Faith Explored on Premier Christian Radio. Been going for 10 years now and uh, many, many people download the podcast every week. If you want to join them, perhaps you haven't discovered it online, premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Always joined by top-notch guests, interesting discussions. We'll hear some more of your feedback to other shows as well towards the end of today's programme. And of course from Tanya Walker. Tanya is one of the speakers joining us for Unbelievable, the conference 2016 this year on Saturday the 2nd of July. Uh, I'll be speaking to her later on in the programme about what she's going to be presenting on in terms of truth and reason and uh, how we come to have faith in Jesus, in God and so on. Um, But if you want to get along to the conference and hear from some great speakers like Tanya and just enjoy that big feel of the community event, uh, bringing together lots of people who are enthusiastic about unbelievable uh, reasoning, Christian faith, apologetics and so on, do go online and uh, and get yourself signed up for the conference. Uh, That's at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable 2016 really looking forward to seeing many show listeners there well we're talking today about whether intrinsically human life has some kind of value richard vicart my christian guest uh, later on we're going to be hearing from susan blackmore who's an atheist philosopher and psychologist but we've been having a conversation between richard and uh, peter singer who's an Australian ethicist, of course, well-known in his field. He comes from an atheistic point of view. Uh, Now, in that last section, Peter, uh, Richard put the question to you, if there's no morality in the fabric of the universe, then how are we making the world better? Saying, I understand we're helping individuals making their lives better, but what difference does that make if there's no meaning in the universe? Well, I don't think you have to believe in a God to think that the universe is a better place if there is less suffering. Let's say, for example that we had been able to prevent the Holocaust. Um, I think the universe would have been a better place 
if those six million or so people had not been murdered and had not suffered uh, often terribly in the process of of being murdered um and i i think to deny that is is really a pretty strange view to say well you know if you don't believe in a creator somehow you can't say it was a bad thing that millions of people got uh, very cruelly treated or you know your, your example genghis khan that he pillaged and raped and so on that you can't say that was a bad thing unless you think there's a creator in the universe i mean do you want to do you want to come back on that richard is, what is that what you're saying well what do, what what does give that what does make that i mean i understand you're going to say well it, it's creating more uh, pain and less pleasure but what is it that makes that in and of itself a bad thing i mean you you've you've emphasized this notion that pleasure is what uh is the good of the unit the the good what brings moral goodness pain is uh morally negative but what is it i mean those things are simply states of existence of things in the universe and why was that would does more pain or more or less pleasure make things worse in the universe or vice versa i mean i don't see how you can get from there to this purpose and meaning that you try to get well i i have to say i find that strange um and i think there would be you know many many people who wouldn't agree with you uh about that that i mean for one thing if i if my own life were to go badly and i were to suffer uh, agonizingly for years in either because of somebody else's evil doing or because of contracting a painful disease or something like that i would think my life is worse now and if i then think i can say that about my own life and i imagine that happening to some stranger then i would think well that stranger's life is worse and if i imagine it happening to millions of strangers then i think well clearly that's significantly worse for the, the world as a whole for if you like the pattern of what happens in the universe the the pattern of what happens is 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 worse in the same way that my life would be worse if i suffered so it's worse for everyone just just a quick response richard and then i think we'll have to start to wind this this conversation up with with peter I'm certainly very gratified that Peter wants to end pain and promote pleasure. I think those are good things. But ultimately, I believe there are things that are even higher than uh, promoting pleasure and diminishing pain for people. And I would suggest that love is one of those things. Relationships that we have and loving relationships are more important than that, even though, of course, they can contribute to having pleasure. uh, But that's not uh, the highest a standard in the universe for morality, I would say. Um, before you go, Peter, I mean, one of the things that we've circled around, and, and which I, th- I think it would be great to hear your your particular view on, is is this thing that you've been criticised by both right to life groups and disability activists, and so on. Is, is your view of of the newborn, and and you've been accused of of promoting infanticide and so on because of your view that. Um, there, there is, in a sense, less value to um, a, a newborn life, um, and and especially, you know, that there might be mitigating circumstances where there may be some kind of a disability, which does provide moral grounds for terminating not just in the womb but even outside the womb um, a, a baby. Um, so, so what is your take on that? Um, do, it, are, are you of the view that it is okay um, with certain types of disability to um, kill? Um, newborn babies if if they're suffering in that way well let let me tell you how i came uh to formulate these views i was uh, directing a bioethics center uh in australia and we had some doctors from one of the major 
hospitals that deals with uh, newborn infants with problems come to talk to us. And they wanted our views about how to handle some of these cases. And they described some conditions where they said, you know, they thought the prospects were very bad for uh, any kind of quality of life for the child to have. And um, there was you know, quite likely in some cases they would be, wouldn't really be suffering because there wasn't even really consciousness, uh, cases like anencephaly, uh, and other less severe cases where there, there would be some consciousness and some suffering. So we said, well, how do you handle these cases? And, and they said, well, uh, we discussed them with the parents, we described the prognosis, and if the parents uh, agree, then we don't give life-supporting treatment. And so we said, well, what happens when you don't give life-supporting treatment? And they said, well, uh, normally the infant will die. And we said, how long does that take? And they said, well, it may take some weeks. In some cases, it may take some months. And I have to say, I, I was uh, rather shocked by this because if you've made a decision that it's better that this infant should die, and that's what doctors were, and I should say still are doing in hospitals, in neonatal intensive care units everywhere in the world, um, then uh, if you've made that decision, wouldn't it be better if that child could die quickly and without further suffering and distress, um, and also in terms of the suffering and distress of the parents who very often would come in and visit their, uh, their infant while the infant basically withered away, maybe was mm. killed by some uh, pneumonia or maybe really just wasn't being fed or yeah, something of that star sort. Starvation or so, whatever. Um, mm. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's why we, uh, my colleague Helga Kuzer and I wrote um, uh, Should the Baby Live, in which we argued that once you've made this decision, and I agree it's a difficult decision to make and that it should only be made with uh, when, when that's what the parents think is best for their baby and their family. Um, but once you've made it, we, I do think that it ought to be permissible to take active steps to end the baby's life rather than to, uh, as the doctors have said, allow nature to take its course what, but of course where, where would where would you is there a line to be drawn i mean what what would you say a parent should have the right to terminate a baby with with let's say a less severe form of disability down syndrome for instance would that be grounds for a baby just born the parent had no idea that the baby had down syndrome in the womb they see that it has they can anticipate that's going to mean a huge life decisions and changes and, and an element of difficulty and suffering in their own life would should that parent have the option to terminate that life because a baby has down syndrome i think probably normally not in that case because the baby is not going to be suffering i mean if you look at people with down syndrome they can have lives of good quality um you know, in some cases it may be that the parents don't want to bring up the child with down syndrome i would hope then that they could find another uh, loving and caring home uh, parents who, who will adopt that child and will give the child a good life. So, so there is, a, in a sense, there, there's a sliding scale for what kind of would amount to a case for um, the termination of a life. Yeah, in that sense. yeah, there is, and of course, there's there are difficult decisions on that grey area. I, I, I am going to have to go at you, this point. Thank you uh, very much for, beating, for being with us, Peter. Really appreciate your contribution towards today's programme and uh, and uh, look forward to perhaps having you on for, for future discussions. All the very best. Thank you for being okay. with us. Thank you. Richard, um, Peter, obviously not able to, to, to stay on the line for any longer. Um, and so we'll, we'll have to kind of do this uh, in his absence now. And, and we're looking forward to being joined by, by Sue Blackmore as well in just a moment's time. But what's your initial response to what uh, what uh, Peter had to say there about the 
um, his view on disability, especially of newborns and and whether there are situations where it's better to end their life than allow it to drag out and kind of die by not providing the kind of life-sustaining um, type of uh, treatment that, that hospitals would normally provide if, if they were trying to sustain a life. Well, I can understand that it fits perfectly logically into the system that he's uh, created where pain is worse than death, ultimately. Uh, so uh, for him... Uh, if something is in miserable pain, it's better off dead. So the solution to something uh, having a painful existence is to kill it. Uh, but to me, this uh, s- seems to not make a lot of sense ethically. And I think most people, like you s- said earlier, their instincts would be revolted by that because I think we realize that uh, pain is not uh, worse than death, that the death of beings that's end of its existence, a painful being is still existing, and I think that can still have value in their life, even if they're going through pain. Um, at what level does your Judeo-Christian view of all humans being made in the image of God impact that? Because I assume that whereas you would see um, Peter's sort of view on his atheism, that there is no overall purpose to the universe and so on, and, and that th- that means that we and you believe that makes it hard for him to justify individual human purpose presumably your view of purpose being very different also impacts your view on those kinds of ethical issues about whether whether different types of humans at different stages in development have the same kind of value well certainly i believe that humans are created in the image of god and because of that and that's one of the reasons i raised the issue of capacities earlier that i think there are other kinds of things that of what it means to be made in the image of God. One of it is that we we have capacities for love. Uh, it's not just about rational capacities. Uh, we have capacities for love and having loving relationships. Uh, God is love, and so when He created us His image, He created us to be loving creatures, loving beings, uh, and so that's a capacity uh, that we have that gives us value. But it's not just a bundle of capacities either. Uh, humans being created in God's image have value in and of themselves, whether or not they have certain capacities at certain times of their lives. God loves us, and we can love him. Well, you're listening to Unbelievable today, discussing whether humans have some kind of intrinsic moral value. Uh, don't forget, uh, you can find today's show at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Uh, Richard Vicart continues to join me as we continue today's show and up next he'll be interacting with atheist psychologist and philosopher Susan Blackmore. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley. Well look let's bring in Susan Blackmore at this point. Uh, Susan thank you very much for patiently being on the line and you've been listening to the conversation that's uh, happened there between Peter and Richard during the course of this program. Um, So yeah what do you want to step in with? What what have been your overall thoughts in regards to this discussion? Well it's partly it's really fascinating and raising issues I'm looking forward to talking about. Partly depressing to hear Richard talking in this way about um, us being made in the image of God we're flesh and blood creatures on a planet um, to say that God is love and we must love him and so it's on, but if we're in his image what about all these people who don't love who've not had the opportunity to be brought up in a loving way so that they're capable of love themselves the, the view that there's a creator there seems to me to stand in the way of clear-sighted morality of thinking about what matters and what doesn't matter putting the intrinsic value of life above uh, 
pain, suffering, compassion, love, seems to me upside down and I think has led to us um, making very bad decisions in the past. Thank goodness we're moving away from Christian societies to uh, secular society. Well, that's not the opposite. From Christian societies to to uh, non-believing, non-religious societies. Um, I'm I'm very glad. I mean, in Britain now, uh, more people are non non-believers than believers, um, and I think this is contributing to us getting away from the the, the, the straitjacket of beliefs that depend on the um, intrinsic value of life. Okay. Um, just a reminder today that we're talking about whether human life is intrinsically valuable. If you want to get in touch yourself, you're welcome to email in unbelievable at premier.org.uk. Don't forget, you can find this show online, uh, listen back to it and uh, send us your thoughts that way as well um, via the show. Uh, premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. And uh, we're talking to Richard Vicar and in this section of the programme uh, to Susan Blackmore as well, who's a, an atheist philosopher and psychologist. Um, Richard's new book, The Death of Humanity, and the case for life. Uh, he claims that um, ideas once used to justify genocide, famine, compulsory sterilization are back in vogue today because um, the idea that human life is intrinsically valuable is dying side by side with our Christian culture. Well, in a way, um, that we, we should be dispensing with the idea that human life is intrinsically valuable when we've got other considerations to make, say people like Peter Singer, who we had on already, and also um, Sue, who's who's on the line now. Um, and, uh, and we heard there didn't we, Richard, that as far as Sue's concerned, Christian morality, this view of the sanctity of human life uh, above and beyond, you know, other considerations of of pain and and everything else is actually has been a a bad thing for us morally. What's what's your take on that? Well, I can understand some of what Sue is saying about uh, Christianity because it hasn't lived up to its morality in many cases. But in terms of the sanctity of human life, the point is to protect those who are weak and to have love for those who are uh, poor, distressed, uh, the widow, the orphan, the, and in, the, in this case, to those that are the weakest members of our society, uh, and to ha- provide protection for them from those that want to destroy life and bring death to them. And so uh, while Christianity has not lived up to, especially in the broadest sense of that term, has not lived up to its own morality by uh, indulging in the Inquisition, Crusades, dominating uh, Europe, persecuting uh, unbelievers, all sorts of things like that, where they have not lived up to the sanctity of human life. Nonetheless, the point of the sanctity of human life is to protect those that are weak and to protect people from those that do want to uh, snuff out their lives. Sue? Um, well, I'm, I'm thinking all the time about some specific um, uh, uh, cases here. One thing that is obsessing a lot of people at the moment is, is the end of life. I feel here I am arrived on this planet. Um, my awareness, my self-knowledge, my capacity to think and so on emerged gradually as I developed from a fetus to an infant to a grown-up. I'm lucky enough to be born in a, a country and with, with a family that's brought me up in, in a moral uh, way and to have lived a, a rich and fulfilling life. But I'm looking forward in a world where medicine can keep us alive and keep us alive and keep us alive to think about my own death. I found my parents' deaths 
one of them terribly distressing, one partly distressing because they were both kept alive with dementia long, long, long after, in my opinion, they should have been. And my mother saying every day, many, many times, I just want to die. I just want to go. Oh, please, I want to go. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to be like that. I would love our society to move beyond um, it, the, the, the position now. And, 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 and partly the, the, these Christian values are, are to blame here. I would love the thought that we would have, that, that sanctity is not life itself, but, but as, as Peter Singer was saying, it, to do with pain and suffering, to do with hope and love and compassion. I would love, if I'm getting to the end of my life and I don't want to live anymore and I still have the clear capacity to say that, and my family have the capacity to agree that that's what I want, to choose the time of my own death, to have a, people around me that I want and to say, this is the day when I'm going to die. I can say goodbye. I can say the kind of things that people always want to say on deathbeds, the kind of things that, and allow my loved ones to say the kind of things that people often regret when someone's dying, they didn't get the chance to say it, um, and be able to choose. It's my life. It's not God's life. It's not Jesus's life. It's mine and my family's and all the people I'm involved with. That seems to me so much more important. Um, and is not helped by by Christian and, and and for you having the ability to decide the way in which you die rather than as it were that that you not having the capacities to control that anymore at a certain point in uh, it would would be important obviously um i mean this is a common argument for for euthanasia assisted dying and so on richard um what uh, what what's your response to that in the book i'm sure it's something that you do you do take on oh yes i definitely uh, take on the issues of uh, euthanasia, but I think basically, uh, once you have the perspective that uh, human life doesn't have any value or purpose or meaning, which is the position that I understand Sue and many other uh, secular uh, secularists to be taking, then I can understand why you wouldn't uh, want to uh, prolong life at at some particular point because you don't see any purpose or value or meaning in your life at all uh, in any kind of real sense and any kind of objective sense let's put it that way again like peter singer says you might say there's some particular meaning meaning that you give to your own life uh, so i can understand why people that taking that particular perspective would say that their life doesn't have any meaning or value but my whole uh my understanding is that our life and our the life does have purpose and meaning and value and so we should not think that we have the the right to take our own lives, just like we wouldn't have the right to take anyone else's life because it doesn't belong to us in the first place. And so, uh, it, it, contra what Sue said, it doesn't belong to us. Uh, it does belong to God as our creator since he created us. I mean, this this then is just a fundamental clash of, of your both your worldviews, isn't it, Sue? Because obviously... No, hang on, hang on. Hang on, I want to jump on that. Go on then, go on. He, he's accusing me of saying that human life has no value. I never said that, and I wouldn't say that. I would say that life itself, human life itself, does not have intrinsic value just by virtue of being life. The fact that a body is alive is not the important thing. I'm completely with Peter Singer on this, although not in everything that he says. Uh, of course, uh, imagining again, coming to the end of my life, um, yes, life has some value. Yes, being alive and not dead has some value, but that value comes from 
all the things that have happened in my life, all the people I've been involved with, the, the effects, good and bad, that they've had, and so on. And when that life of mine we're talking about in this case comes to the point where I'm suffering, I'm causing suffering to others through my own suffering, I don't want to be there anymore. That, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not wiping out all value of, of life at all. What, what, how, how important is it, for instance, you, you, you have thrived as, a, as an intellectual um, Susan and, and in a sense I can see that brings huge fulfilment to your life to be able to engage in these kinds of discussions to teach others and so on if you're in if it weren't a case that you were in pain but your intellectual capacities went um, would that be for you cause enough for you to want to seek to end your life because from that point of view a large aspect of what makes your life worth living would have would have ended that's an absolutely wonderful question. Um, not one I've thought about for a long time, but I can tell you why I think it's such a wonderful question. Mm. Because I can remember as a teenager, and indeed I think at university, thinking that if I lost my ability, uh, my intellectual ability, I wouldn't be me anymore and I wouldn't want to be alive. I can remember at school, in a way, I was terrible, terrible school. I mean, I, it, it was a very posh, expensive boarding school but it was a nightmare I was desperately unhappy and really I sort of fought for who I was just through by being clever and you know being top in exams and things like that a very narrow restricted unhappy uh, way of, of, of being a teenager and I grew out of that and I can remember thinking about hang on a minute if I weren't clever anymore well I'd just be a different person that's fine I'm going to change anyway we all change through our lives and I've come through my lifetime to think of that you know braininess if you like to be just happens to be what you know this body was born with mm. it's not you know, intrinsically so value you know I've become more to value mm. love and compassion and, and and sharing things with people and caring about suffering during my lifetime I have also found happiness in many other things. So the simple answer to your question is, I would become a gardener or a painter. Those are two things I do. <laughs> I, I, have, I have chickens, I grow all our vegetables, I help with the cutting down of trees and making, we try to, you know, use a cycle of wood and growing our own trees to heat the house. And, you know, there are many, many things that I would carry on. I don't know quite what I'd say about it. Oh, God, I woke up this morning and I can't write another book. So right. I can't think straight. Um, but, you know, yes, uh, I think this, this, this creature here would find fulfillment in in weeding and uh, tending the vegetables in, in things that that weren't in that sense intellectually um you know straining Absolutely. but 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 you yes. st you would still see there would there would still be other purposes that you have accumulated in that sense um things that you value about your life Absolutely. um yeah uh, um richard um w w what do you make then of of sue's view that uh, you you can't sort of say to her uh, she doesn't have value. She absolutely does have these values, these things that give her life fulfillment and so on. And she doesn't see any need to kind of appeal to a, a higher purpose or value for life in order to say that there are things that make life valuable for her. And if someone gets to the point where they don't feel that, that the level of pain or suffering, or whatever it might be, that they're, they're experiencing themselves or those around them are experiencing, they should have the right to choose when to end their life in that sense. Well, I'm sorry that I put words in her mouth, and I'm, I'm sorry by using that term uh, not having value that, uh, because she apparently objected to that part of it. But I still, just as with Peter Singer, I still have difficulty seeing how you get from a universe without purpose and meaning. And here's here I, in my book, actually, uh, Sue, I actually quote you at one point. 
Uh, in fact, I have a, a, about a page discussion of you in my book. And one of the quotes I have in here from an interview that you did says, it seems to me that as far as I can tell, the universe has no ultimate purpose. It's pointless. So I still can't understand how you can get from a pointless universe that has no meaning, no purpose in the overarching sense to the sense that then uh, your own human life has some kind of value. And I think you even said it doesn't have, an, or either you or Peter, one of you said it didn't have intrinsic value, but that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about value, I think. Well, well, let's take a quick break and we'll let Susan come back on this. Um, we're talking about whether human life is intrinsically valuable. Um, it's one of those philosophical, ethical, moral discussions. It's turned into sort of areas of euthanasia, um, abortion, infanticide and so on. Um, and so we'll, we'll finish off this conversation uh, with my guests who still with me, uh, Richard Vicart, author of The Death of Humanity and the Case of Life, and uh, Susan Blackmore, who's well known here in the UK as an atheist philosopher and uh, psychologist and uh, will be... Uh, hearing what they have to say towards the end of today's edition of Unbelievable. You're listening to Unbelievable on Premier Christian Radio. Well, we're concluding our discussion on whether human life is intrinsically valuable. Uh, that's a value, actually, that society is losing as it dispenses with Christian culture, says Richard Weikart in his new book, The Death of Humanity and the Case for Life. So we, we're going back to an age where we're justifying genocide, forced famine, compulsory sterilization. Those were things we've seen in other cultures that we rejected. But um, do modern ethics actually, are they pointing us back in that direction? Um, earlier on in the show, we had Peter Singer, bioethicist at Princeton University, well known for his writing in this area. And someone who um, uh, Richard takes to task in this new book. And interestingly, um, Susan herself, who now joins us on the line, Susan Blackmore, uh, an atheist philosopher and psychologist herself, is also... Um, comes in for criticism in the book as well Susan what Richard was saying in that last section was simply that if you do believe there's no ultimate purpose to the universe and there's no intrinsic value in that sense to human life um, how can you make the leap in that sense to to individual purposes and, and individual value in in the way that you apparently do well this is uh, another way in which Darwin's brilliant insight uh, provides the answer because what we can see in this pointless universe is the way um, amazing designs, living things, incredibly complex systems arise by the processes of natural selection, by the fact that on a rich and thriving planet, not everything can survive. And because most things die and the ones that live pass on their characteristics to the next generation, design appears as it were by magic, but it isn't magic. It's by natural selection. It's, by the, it's actually, if you like, it's killing by death. I mean, this is the sad fact of how evolution works. It's only because of all the things that fail that the ones that succeed get better and better design and we get wings and eyes and amazing things. And here we are. And in the midst of all that, we also get creatures capable of suffering, of love, of, of community. Um, in many species, as well as humans, we find parents loving their children and loving their partners and, and forming communities and working together and having to have um, the beginnings of moral value. And then you come to humans who are so much more um, uh, complex again with the kind of intelligence and, and culture and so on that we have. And out of that emerge meanings. Out of that emerges the capacity for humans to see suffering in others. And rats can do this too. And so can some birds. You know, a rat 
seeing another rat locked up in a cage with, with no food will pick up food and carry it and give it to the one that doesn't have any. So you know, these things are, are, are coming about um, through the animal kingdom. And here we are as an animal capable of intense and deep suffering because of because of how clever we are, because of the, our capability and the capacity to see others suffering. And out of that, I think, comes the, the, the longing to have a world which is more full of love and less full of pain and uh, I mean, anguish. I, I suppose my, my question, Sue, is, is that all still ultimately, though, rooted in, in genetics, in our evolutionary drive? Even altruism yes. is actually an outworking of, of a simple yes. kind of a simple law, effectively. Yes, yes. Okay, so there's no <laughs> ultimate purpose. Let, let's let's allow Richard to respond then. Yes, go ahead, Richard. So, Sue, then, am I taking you to agree with E.O. Wilson and Michael Roos when they made their kind of famous statement that morality is an illusion fobbed off on us by our genes to get us to cooperate? Does that does that describe your position? <laughs> No, not not really. I mean, it's partly the way that that's put fobbed off on us. Um, uh, no, I mean, I don't think it's a trick. No, I think it is. It's the glue that makes human society possible. We wouldn't be able to have the kind of societies we have or our capacity to go from. You've talked about the Holocaust, Genghis Khan, all of these things. It is amazing. Stephen Pinker points out this a, a lot. It is amazing the way. Uh, the number of killings, homicide and all sorts of cruelty and so on have decreased over thousands and thousands of years. We have managed to create societies. Yes, we often fail, but we have managed to create societies that have things like a national health service, that have laws that protect the weak, that have um, general um, encouraging people, bringing children up in school to care about people of other races and other kinds. The fact that we've now, um, we have um, gay marriage, we have you know, equality um, for people with different sexual orientations. These kinds of things are a real, real progress. That is all possible on the basis of an animal that I mean, has I have a feeling that, that, natural selection. that Richard's going to ask you the same question you asked to Peter, which is, in a pointless universe, how can you speak of progress? Progress towards what? Is there an ultimate sort of out there goal of, of morality that you do believe we're progressing towards? Or, or what do you mean by progress in an in a ultimately pointless universe? Um. No, I don't think there's any goal we're going towards. I think it's the same if you look at the whole evolutionary process and see the wonders of what's appeared without any direction, without any final plan. It's all happened in well, the way What do you mean by because... progress then? What is What are we progressing towards? You well, always think I... of progress as towards a goal, don't you? Did I, did I use the word progress? I mean, I, I, if I did, then I'll have to qualify it and say, I want to, I look at the world and because of my intrinsic preference for happiness and joy and love over suffering, cruelty and pain, I would see progress as being a world in which we increase the love and compassion and sharing and so on, and we decrease the pain and suffering and cruelty. It's not ultimate progress towards any goal. It is progress in the sense of that's all. I mean, it's hard. It's so easy to, to, to put a God in place and say, this is God's will, this is where we're going. But when you actually look into what the kingdom of heaven would be like, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So I would rather take the view of, of, of being, accepting that I live in a pointless universe, the amazing wonders of what has appeared, do my best with a tiny little one life amongst billions um, to... To, to do that, what seems to me 
better. Yeah. A uh, kindness, let, let's, a kindness let's, over cruelty. Let's bring Richard back in. So she doesn't. She feels saying that uh, we, our mor- morality is an illusion, fobbed off on us by 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 evolution, is is not quite right because it's it's about this. Um, you know, for want of a better word, progress towards a, a state where there is just more general happiness and so on. Richard, what, what, what's your problem with that then? Well, I, fi- I find that actually rather ironic in light of the fact that she uh, called, talked about the uh, mass death that uh, the Darwinian struggle for existence necessarily entails. She actually used the word sad fact, which I thought was interesting. That implies a moral judgment of the process of evolution itself. Uh, which <laughs> means you're taking a moral position relating to something in a pointless universe. Uh, so I find that kind of ironic. But I also have some empirical problems with the notion that uh, you know violence is, is decreasing and such. I know Steven Pinker's put out a book where he makes those kind of claims, but uh, I I really don't. <laughs> in the in the long view of things, I mean, I have uh, severe problems thinking about. Uh, reading the newspapers, reading, listening to the news, seeing what's going on in the world today, and thinking about the fact that uh, we're a society with much less violence. Of course, also from my perspective, and Sue and I are going to disagree on this issue, of course, uh, but also my perspective of uh, killing of unborn infants being an act of violence, uh, we're actually killing far more uh, people today, human beings today, uh, than have been killed in most ages in the past. But even aside from that, uh, I'm not convinced that uh, violence has uh, been uh, decreased that significantly. Um, so we're going to have to start wrapping things up. Um, obviously, from from Richard's point of view, and his whole book is about this, he, he thinks that by dispensing with this idea of intrinsic human value, we are kind of sleepwalking towards um, those things that we we abhor, or, or we said we've abhorred in the past, uh, eugenics, compulsory sterilization, and those sorts of things. Do, what, why do you think that our that, that dispensing with the intrinsic that nature of the value of human life doesn't necessarily mean we'll we'll be walking towards that kind of a future? I think we're walking away from a straitjacket of an ancient religion whose morality was designed in a world without modern medicine, without the kind of society and the capacities and the technology we have now, we're going towards a society where we can open our eyes and our hearts and think much, much more deeply about what really matters. I mean, abortion is another another big issue, of course. If you believe in the intrinsic value of life just for the sake of life, you are causing unbelievable suffering to parents, particularly mothers, all over the world. Um, they, the, the fetus is not capable of, of suffering like a mother is. Bringing children in, forcing mothers to bring up kids that they didn't want and couldn't cope with and therefore will produce children with difficult, you know, they will pass on these difficulties to their children if they have them. Um, we are just moving in a much better direction away from the cruelty that arises from, from, the, from taking the intrinsic value of life but you know, by, 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 by virtue of believing in a creator. I'm optimistic, <laughs> but I get, I get a bit depressed when I think about these, the hanging on of these, these ideas that are so oppressive and so, so cruel. Thank you very much for joining us uh, in the latter part of today's conversation, Sue. Um, really appreciate that. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, where should they go to, to find out more? 
Oh, well, um, uh, I have a big website, which I maintain myself, which is full of all kinds of stuff and has a section on religion and atheism and so on. I, I'm on Facebook, but that's um, looked after by my assistant. Um, I do try to also put things on there and answer questions on there. Um, so you can try either of those. Great. Thank you very much for being with me today. Um, Richard, we'll, we'll finish with you then. Um, obviously, You've, you've disagreed strongly with both Peter and Sue in the course of today's programme. Um, f- from Sue's point of view, as we heard there, as far as she's concerned, dispensing with this intrinsic view of human life as, as inherently valuable will actually free us to, 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 to be more compassionate, to, to weigh things more properly in terms of our current view of, of what we know about life biology, evolution, medicine, and, and so on. Uh, and so, so for her, it, it's actually a, a progressive thing, not a regressive thing, to, 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 to not sort of hang on to that particular kind of what she would see as a religiously driven kind of value. Well, Holland and Belgium are two of the most advanced. Switzerland are three of the, three of the most advanced countries in Europe along the way toward allowing physician-assisted suicide and suicide of all sort. And I think it's a hard argument to make that what they are doing is actually compassionate uh, for people in many, many, many cases. Uh, people are committing suicide without even uh, having any pain. People are flying to, suic- uh, to Switzerland to commit uh, or to engage in what's sometimes called suicide tourism. A lady in Italy who was losing her beauty decided that that was grounds enough to go commit suicide in Switzerland and goes and does it. Uh, in Belgium, a psychiatrist signed off for assisted suicide for uh, a a man who had been was transgender had had a gender change sex change operation she'd been a uh, grown up as a girl uh, her she'd been despised for being a girl by her own uh, parents uh, got a sex change operation hated it and then she gets a psychiatrist to sign off for her uh, suicide I mean this is not a compassionate society and, and despite the fact that people think it's compassion what's compassion would be to support the people in their weaknesses in fact if you look at the oregon in the united states which does have much tighter regulations in how assisted suicide can operate in oregon uh, there are a large number of people that commit assisted suicide who have very uh, little in the way of networks of family and friends and so they don't have the kind of loving support that people have uh, very often going through these kinds of terminal illnesses and so they decide to commit suicide. So I don't see it as compassion. I see it as a lack of compassion, a lack of in love, that sense, it's a an lack in- of the kind of loving networks that we need to have. A kind of an indictment of society that that we have got to the point where people are so individualistic in that sense, in 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 their view of life that that they because they don't have these networks, you would say that's that's driving them towards this idea that well, I might as well end my life. I mean, I I, suppose, I, I imagine Sue Sue I imagine would would say it's important kind of from both ends to make sure people are. Uh, fulfilled but i yeah it's it's an interesting point but just yeah go ahead but just by but just by putting the law forward and allowing people to do it and have and participating in it by having physicians actually administer uh the prescriptions to the drugs and such uh, we are putting our stamp approval on it and saying basically your life is valueless your life doesn't matter anymore and so we're going to support you if you want to end your life it's not just a matter of letting you do it and not prosecuting you for it we're going to say we're going to help you 
Well, look, it's been great having you on, and, and thanks to Sue as well. And uh, as ever, we were never going to get to a point of agreement between my guests. So that's the point of the show, really, in many ways. We, we, we aim to open up these issues, and I'm sure you'll want to comment as well. I'll make sure to give you the ways to get in touch in a moment's time, and I'm sure the comments will be flying around um, underneath today's programme online as well. You can find that at premierchristianradio.com slash unbelievable. Really interesting show today. Is human life intrinsically valuable? Thanks to um, both Richard Vicart. Um, Richard, thanks for being with me. Thank you, Sue, as well, for being on the line. And um, and uh, thanks also to Peter Singer, who was with us earlier as well. Uh, you've been listening to me, Justin Briley. 